everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Plant Powered Dog Podcast. Today, I want to welcome a really special guest to the podcast, Dr. Richard Pitcairn. Dr. Pitcairn is arguably the most well-known holistic veterinarian in the world. His illustrious career is in veterinary medicine has spanned more than five decades. Dr. Pitcairn earned his DVM degree from UC Davis in 1965 and a PhD in veterinary immunology from Washington State in 1972. In 1990, Dr. Pitcairn began teaching colleagues a careful and systematic approach to classical homeopathy and nutrition, which is now known as the Pitcairn Institute of Veterinary Homeopathy. Among his many other achievements, Dr. Pitcairn is also the author, with his wife Susan, of the classic book, Dr. Pitcairn's Complete Guide to Natural Health for Dogs and Cats, which is now in its fourth edition. Dr. Pitcairn, I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that. There's so much more I could have gone on all day, but I just want to <laughs> let you know that, you know, thank you so much for being here. You're just an amazing person who everyone I speak with who's come across you has told me just how willing you are to share your knowledge and your information and your wisdom. And that's that's what happened to me several years ago when you were one of the very first people to bring me along the journey of plant-based dog nutrition. And it's just changed my life. It's changed so many people's lives and their dogs' lives. So thank you very much. Really appreciate quite, it. Quite welcome. The only thing I might just add to, for emphasis is I did have a, a practice in Eugene, Oregon for about 20 years. There was a homeopathic nutrition, right? That's all I did was homeopathy, nutrition, no vaccines, no surgery, nothing else. And it was very, wow. very successful. So it just tells people that it can be, you know, it's right. not like, it's not like something that's ineffective. It really worked. <laughs> well, I mean, that's just, and I think all the years that, and I'm not trying to make you feel old or <laughs> you've been doing this a lot of years. And, and, and with that time comes something that a lot of practitioners don't have, which is the ability to see the, to, to see disease progression and how it's happened over decades in, in animals, in your clients, in the population yeah. as a whole. Yeah. And you know, so, I mean, I'm wondering, did that, did watching this and what, what you saw happen in the companion animal population, did that influence the changes in the fourth edition of your book, which, I mean, if there's anyone out there who, who doesn't know who you are, you know, we'll just say that the first three editions of your really famous book, you know, just it was a, a function of the times, I think, too, just sort of focused more on um, just that dogs and cats eat meat, you know? And in 2017, with the fourth edition, you really changed that whole perspective. So did mm -hmm. a lot of that come from what you had observed over so much time? Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. It was a process of learning over quite a number of years. Uh, and also what I was learning was how our 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 world has changed, our culture has changed, our environment has changed, things I did not know before. Uh, the the first, uh, first edition of our book, which was based on promoting kind of a 
more natural animal care program was in 1982. And then the last edition was 2018. So you see quite a span of years there. Right. Yeah, so so yes, the diary definitely, I, I learned gradually different things, which if you want to, we can go over the significant uh, yes, I, I would like to know what what really most impacted you and what you saw mm -hmm. that was sort of like aha moments in what was happening with companion animals. And of course, I focus on dogs. So in particularly what you saw in, in your canine clients, patients. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it might it might make sense to start at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Um, when I went through veterinary school, um, I graduated in 65, and really I had, you know, basically zero training in nutrition for dogs and cats. I remember there was a, a, a semester on feeding horses, but I didn't, you know, really work. I did some work with horses at first, but then I, dogs and cats, they just said feed commercial pet food. <laughs> right. So I didn't know much about it. And which I is a lot have... what they say today, which is, you know, a lot of yeah. people, a lot of vets still say that today. Yeah, I've heard that too, that they say there's not much training. I don't know why. It's sort of odd. Right. But right. anyway, I didn't know much about it and didn't have much interest in it. And um, what changed for me, the first thing that was significant was when I was in graduate school working on my, my, um, research and PhD in immunology, I was studying how to help the immune system function better. That's what I wanted to learn. That's why I was going to school. And I came across, I, I should say first, it was very good training. I learned quite a bit and in, in understanding all of that. It's a very amazing and complex mechanism. But I wasn't really learning how to make it function better. Mm. How things more how things go wrong with it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I came across this paper um, written by some doctors. It was someplace in Africa where they worked with children that had malnutrition, and they found out that nutrition made a big difference in how they how their immune system functioned. So that triggered an interest in me for the first time, wow. and so I began to study more about using nutrients to try to help animals. And when I went back into practice, I, the first few years back in practice, that's what I emphasized was adding nutrients and vitamins and other, whatever I felt I learned might be helpful. And uh, so I was learning, you know, I didn't know, I didn't have any training, but I was experimenting. And, um, but then I can't remember the, the timing is too long ago, what year, but I do remember, what, for example, one of the books, I'll hold it up here in case you can see it. Um, yes. Mm -hmm. Food Fets Die For is a, is a really excellent example. To read that was just absolutely mind-blowing because she, this woman, Ann Martin, that wrote the book because her dogs had been sick from commercial food, did all this research and describes how pet food is actually made. And I didn't know, oddly enough, didn't know that. You think I would as a veterinarian, but, and I won't go into detail about it, uh, except to say it's very low quality. It's um, a lot of disease material is used. It's uh, not very pure, not very well processed. It's, you know, very unhealthy. Mm 
really, when you read the book. So that really changed me in the sense that I started formulating. It seemed like the obvious thing to do was to encourage people producing, making their own food. That I couldn't see any other. There were some other brands out there maybe that were better. It's, it's hard to tell. I did some research in that regard, but you know, again, it was hard to really be certain about it. So I, I was, that's when it kind of stimulated me to start thinking in terms of encouraging people to make their own food and have their own sources. Use organic, um, you know, not over-processing it and so on. And that was really the basis, that experience over several years was what led to our first edition where we had our own recipes. And it was emphasizing using um, fresh and raw meat. Right. Because that's the way the trend was. And that's made sense, I thought. Another, another step that was important to me was sort of the question was coming up, why were more and more animals having chronic disease and cancer? Compared to when I graduated, there's a lot more of it in, in animals now than there was then. And there has to be a reason for it, right? It's a good question. Right. Why is there so much? Why is it increasing? And there can be different, there's different ideas, you know, some of it is heredity, people say, some say it's, you know, it's certainly over vaccination is a factor. But <clears throat> I came to think that it was really what was in food. And I'll explain to you, I'm going to go over to a document myself. and explain to you a really significant study that well, you're probably familiar with that I that I came across that really made a difference. And this was um, but done by the Environmental Working Group. And um, I love them. They're... Yeah, 2004, they did a test of, of newborn babies and they tested the umbilical uh, blood, the umbilical cord blood. In other words, the blood that was after they were born, the blood that was coming from the placenta feeding the babies. Have yeah. you seen this study yourself? I have seen this. Yes, it's very frightening. Yeah. So it what they did is they studied these babies to see what kind of chemicals were in the blood that the babies were living off. And they found um, in 2004 that there was a total of 287 chemicals in, right. the, in the blood, and um, which included pesticides and consumer product ingredients and waste from burning coal and gasoline and garbage. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. um, of the 287 chemicals that they detected, it, it says that uh, they know that 180 of them cause cancer in humans mm. or animals. And 217 are toxic to the brain and nervous system. And 208 cause birth defects or abnormal mm. development in, in tests that have been done in animals. Mm. So that's just amazing, isn't it? To think when you see that, oh my gosh, how much you know chemicals mm. there are in our bodies now, the hundreds. And that's exposure before the person is even in the world, <laughs> before they're born, right? This yes, is what but their they're mother getting. is. But their mother, this is, so we come into this world, or at least children nowadays do, really already toxic. Yes, 
But then see, the mother has all those chemicals. That's because they come from her, right. which means the other members of the family have them too. Right. 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 Yep. So yep. To, I might ask you, when you see a study, when you see that study where they found 287 chemicals, can you see the limitation of the study? Oh, I would imagine that there are several limitations in that, first of all, what chemicals have been identified, you know? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's the point I want to emphasize here for, for people that are listening to this. The, the problem is, as we're going to get into, is that the, the chemicals are in the environment, in the water and air, soil, as well as and in, in the food, of course. But the problem is that um, the, our culture, that's what I was saying earlier when we started, you know, the, our culture has changed in that it has allowed the use of synthetic chemicals that have been developed, right. which was, is understandable. I mean, it makes sense that, you know, you develop a new chemical for killing weeds or killing parasites or for medicine or whatever it is, cleaning your house. If somebody, yeah. some chemist uh, develops a, a new chemical that's more effective, well, of course, it makes sense to use it, right? You could sell right. it and make money. The problem is that these chem the chemicals will also then possibly have health effects, right? Because we they've never existed Absolutely. on our planet before. They've been made for the first time. Mm-hmm. So, yes. um, Supposedly, our FDA in the U.S. you know regulates that. So um, the, uh, the the difficulty is that the, when a com when a company develops a chemical and submits it for approval by the FDA, the FDA has ninety days to approve it. Mm. So there's no time for any testing that they can do. So they rely on what the company itself has done and what they tell them. Right, and and they get um, on average, you know, on average, they get over seven submissions a day. So up until this date, I mean, this time now, um, they I've read that they are there's a, a hundred thousand chemicals that have been mm. approved, one hundred thousand. So back to your question of the limitation, they only know how to test for two hundred and eighty-seven. They don't know how to oh, test no. for the other hundreds uh. and hundreds of chemicals, you see, because they have to develop chemical tests for that purpose. Otherwise, you can't find it. Right. You see how complicated it is. Well, and it's that old adage of you don't know what you don't know. How do you develop a test for something that you don't even know what that test should encompass? Exactly. Um, exactly. You know? Well, you could go back. I mean, theoretically, one could go back and see what's been approved by the FDA. Right. right, and then you could you could pay a chemist to develop to develop a um, a method of detecting it chemically. Uh -huh. But you realize, you know, when you're testing, say for maybe three or four hundred chemicals, we still have over um, ninety nine thousand to develop <laughs> that for. Can our culture afford to pay chemists to develop tests for ninety nine thousand chemicals? No, we're not going to do that, are we? Mm -hmm. So the, the problem is that 
the, uh, they say that of the chemicals that have been developed and released for use, uh, it's less than 5% have ever been tested for health effects. Oh. And to my knowledge, none of them have ever been, been tested in dogs. Wow. Yeah. So that's very significant, don't you think? Well, and it brings back a term that you are responsible for teaching me that is just become the basis of what I pass along now to teaching other people, which is bioaccumulation. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's mm -hmm. also, how are these all coming together? And, and, yes. and since the seventies where, you know, paper plants were putting out these things and into the waters and, and how they, so maybe for people who don't understand the significance of bioaccumulation and what that means for animal-based diets versus plant-based diets, because, you know, I'll just preface this question a little bit by saying that a lot of times people will say to me, well, but, you know, plants have chemicals in them too, right? So yes, we live in a toxic world, but there's, there's that ladder that you talk about of bioaccumulation. So I'm hoping you can you can expand upon that for people. Yeah, yeah it's, I, I, I think it's very important and uh, very significant to what we're talking about here because the term bioaccumulation is sometimes a, an, another term that means the same thing as food chain. People may have heard of that. So what that means is um, where these chemicals that we're talking about that are released, they're released in various ways into the environment, not all the same way. You know, some some go into the air, some go to water when you wash your clothes or in industry when they're producing, they rinse out their equipment and, or they discharge things into the rivers and so on, you know, all that. So they, the chemicals end up in the soil and water, come down in the rain. Um, they are applied to plants sometimes, you know, they're, they're actually, some, some are used in agriculture. So yes, plants can contain these chemicals. But the animals that are used to feed dogs, um, the livestock that are, that are raised and killed and processed for that purpose are eating the plants. That's what they live on. So they're eating the plants that have the chemicals in them. In them. But the plants, another, let's step back a little bit. The plants pick up the chemicals from growing in the soil and water because it's in the environment all over the world, right? So, so the plants pick it up. The animals then that feed on the plants, when they, those chemicals go into their bodies, and, and I'm gonna refer back to what I said a moment ago, that when these chemicals are made, they're new to our world. Yeah. They're new biologically. So most of the time, oftentimes, our bodies really don't know what to do with them, so to speak. They don't have any way. You know, over centuries, biological development has resulted in the ability to process things that are toxic. Animals and plants have learned how to do that. They adapt to it. But now these are being introduced too fast and they're too different that our bodies and animal bodies don't know how to process these chemicals to get rid of them. You'll hear sometimes people say, oh, you know, you do various things to clean their body, fasting, taking right. herbs. But what's important to understand is that it's that will not necessarily rid the body of these chemicals. To 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 remove a chemical in, from the body requires a, a process, usually done in the liver, 
where it's combined with another molecule and excreted it through the urine. So uh, if, it, if the animal body doesn't have the ability to somehow process it to get rid of it, then all it can do is store it somewhere, right? Yeah. It's sort of be yeah. like if somebody, every morning somebody brought a little cup of something to your front door that, that you couldn't recycle, you couldn't throw away, you couldn't use, what would you do? You store it somewhere, maybe in your garage, right? So that's what happens with animals. They store it in their, in their flesh, in their fat and, and, and different tissues because they, they don't know what, else, in a sense, and I'm putting they don't know, they don't know what to do with it, you see. They, they right. can't get rid of it, so it builds up. So right. if somebody objects to eating a plant, say, well, this plant has some chemicals in it, so I don't want to eat it. They have to realize that the animal they're eating has eaten that plant thousands of times. So let's say and eating for, other animals that have eaten that plant. Yes, it could be that too as well. Yeah. So, yeah. so let's say for example, just to, for for um, understanding, let's say that a plant, one plant that's going to be eaten by the livestock has a drop of chemical, let's just say, is a way right. of measuring it. it, has one drop of chemicals in it from the environment. The cow or the, or the lamb or whatever it is eating it, eats that plant and gets that drop in its body, right? Stores it. But now it does that every day. So by the time you know, months or years have gone by, it's got thousands and thousands and thousands of drops in its body. So that's what's meant by a bioaccumulation. And simply put, the animal that's eating the plants is accumulating the chemicals in their body. So we're talking about a dose increase. If you were to eat the plant, you would have a very small dose. If you eat the animal, you're going to have a dose that's thousands or maybe a million times larger in quantity. So now we're talking so, about a significant dose. Yes, that makes total sense so i'm going to play devil's advocate with something that people like to often say um and when i say people like to i this is typically social media where everyone has <laughs> has their strong opinion right um yeah. but like my husband says you can have your opinion but you can't have your own facts so what you're <laughs> <laughs> what you're saying are all facts now, what would you say to people, and, and I'm sort of leading this again, because this was something else that you educated me on regarding pasture land. What would you say to people who come back and say, well, that's all well and good for those feeding their dogs commercial meat-based products. Yes, I agree with that. I would never do that. My dog eats raw meat and, you know, it's, it's, wonderful and it's fine and it's human grade and, and all you know organic so what do you say to that do they still need to worry about this problem of bioaccumulation because it's organic perhaps it's or it's pasture raised, pasture or raised. It's, yeah 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 I, I i think that 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 reflects not fully understanding how widespread the contamination is because if you say, for example, you say organic, that means the animals haven't been given drugs and things. But that's just a small part of what we're talking about here. 
we're talking about uh, chemicals in the environment, in the air and water, the soil, that regardless of whether pasture raised or not. So let me give you, uh, let me go to another reference here and read a little bit of this too, because it's relevant here to give to give more a sense of what we're talking about is, as as um, excuse me, go to the right spot here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there, there's a study that kind of addresses this and it's called, um, uh, scroll down to it here. Yeah, so this is a, a study that was done with wildlife in Montana. Now wildlife, you know, we're mm. talking about living out in nature, right? So they, over the last 20 years, they've recorded health issues related to the exposure to these chemicals that are in the environment. Mm. And what they've observed is that they're exposed through the food, the water, and the air. And they, here are some of the effects that they noted in these wild animals. They had abnormal development of their faces. Oh, wow. They had eye deformities mm. uh, in deer and owls, goats, magpies, mm. and so on. They developed um, congenital develop malformation of the thymus gland and some kind of impairment of the immune systems. Hmm. They saw in newborn animals, they saw skin rashes, blistering skin tumors in both wild and domestic animals. Hmm. They found um, disorders in the lymph, lymph system and on the blood vessels of their hearts. They found diseases and malformation of the heart and of the lungs. They saw in deers, deer of all mm -hmm. ages, the enlarged right heart ventricle and emphysema of the lungs. Mm -hmm. They found liver disease, liver tumors, enlarged livers, and, and um, number of birds and mammals. Uh, abnormality of the sexual organs, and not being the normal size or distorted. And then the last thing was not uh, newborn animals not thriving, not growing properly. And these are in wild animals. So these are wild know, animals. So right. pasture raised are going to get the same thing. You see, right. So they say when know. people ask about pasture raised, they're assuming there's no chemicals out there. And we're trying to communicate to them that there are chemicals out there, you have to you have to get, you know, you have to grok this. There's a lot of chemicals out there now in the environment. Um, and what, an example would be um, uh, one of the one of the uh, most common ones is fire retardant chemicals in in uh, from clothing, and bedding. Right. It's a, it's an interesting right. one because fire retardant. They add that to the when clothing is made and sold, they add fire retardant right. chemicals, especially to bedding sheets and blankets and things because you know obviously right. the concern is that smokers will set their bed on fire well the effect of that is because the fire retardants are have been shown to be toxic fire retardant chemicals are then once you purchase that material and use it it's given off into the air of your room and from the air of your room out into the atmosphere and once it's in the air then it blows around the countryside fire retardants. Uh, they've measured it in children. 
And the children that have the highest levels of fire retardant in their bodies are in Alaska because that's where the winds blow up. Um, wow. another, another one, another example is, um, um, you, you've ever heard the term biosolids? Bio yeah, well, what it refers to is sewage sludge. Oh, okay. And so what that means is um, when a town or city processes its water, it goes usually into something like a pond and the solids settle out and the water supposedly is processed. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, um, uh, so, but that's, that builds up, you can imagine. What, and what's in that is all the stuff that's from cleaning our houses, from businesses, industry, you know, medicines, medications that we all, yeah, everything that, is urinated that's, into a toilet, you know, every, you know, all that stuff goes down in the sewage slide. So it's very, very contaminated, right? Yeah. Well, the problem was that the, the different towns and cities didn't know what to do with it. They had too much of it. So the FDA set up, actually set up a contest to name it. Oh. And they, they awarded a prize. I forget how much it was now. Let me go over here and look at my what I wrote about it. Yeah. So so bio sludge one. Well, I'm going to explain to you what they did here. Um, yeah, three hundred thousand uh, oh, wow. dollars. Oh. As a prize to the ones uh, that would come up with the best name. So. Mm. So they. Uh, so they uh, had a contest and the winner was biosolids. Oh, biosolids, right. So then the FDA approved its use on uh, food crops. Oh. So the most toxic material in our world is applied to food crops to, uh, as uh, a fertilizer. So human, they, human waste? Everything, yeah. Human animal waste. Now, I don't know how extensively the food crops. Um, I know it's, it is sold commercially and, and you can go down and buy a bag with biosolids in it. But, <laughs> um, but see, the thing that they, is that they, they test for, um, they regulate uh, what's in the sewage sludge. They regulate 10 heavy metals and two pathogens. All the rest are not regulated. So it just gives you more of an idea of how much there's out here. Let me slip back here to this thing about the umbilical cords again. Um, you know, when we talked about the uh, chemicals in the body, because I want to bring that to animals. Yeah, it is really significant because, it, you know, it's, I think it's a big factor. And what, you know, you asked me, what, what, why is there so much of this disease? And I think this is, uh, these are, this is the, the most important of all of them, I think. Okay, so so at some a study was done by an environmental working group later. Um, I think it was 2016, and I have the reference here if you want it. Um, so they did a study in animals, dogs and cats, and they were um, 20 dogs and 37 cats that were collected at a Virginia veterinary clinic. And they took samples of blood and urine from these animals and they checked them for uh, 
the chemicals that they could check for. And they found that dogs and cats had 48 of 70 industrial chemicals um, and 43 that were at levels higher than those found in people. Yeah. And they found include uh, plastics, food packaging, heavy metals, food retardants, stain proofing chemicals. Uh, for example, Teflon was 2.4 times higher than people. Fire retardants were 23 times higher than people. Mercury was over five times higher than what's found in people. Yeah. Um, the the uh, in dogs, the blood and urine samples were contaminated with 35 chemicals, including 11 carcinogens, 31 chemicals toxic to the reproductive system, and 24 neurotoxins. Mm. So that's very significant, isn't it? So it's telling mm. us that animals, now why would animals be have higher levels? Because they're eating at the top of the food chain. They're eating more meat and fish than people are. So what right. it comes down to, unfortunately, is if you're eating much um, animal product, meat and other, you know, milk and eggs and whatever, you're getting the highest level of environmental toxins. And the, mm -hmm. since dogs and cats are eating at the top, the most meat, then they're getting the mm -hmm. most chemicals. Yes. Um, well, so I so don't what know. To do, what to do, right? Well, I mean, what to do exactly? <laughs> so you see the, the, so coming back to what I learned when I, when I, you know, I didn't learn this all this at once, stepwise. And when mm -hmm. I found out about the chemicals that were in, in human beings, they're, they're saying now that they're finding 400. Right. Is the average human in the US has 400 chemicals in their body. So, and that's what can be detected. Right. There could be more, as you said earlier. So then when I find out that's even higher in animals than it is in people, so then the question to me as a veterinarian advising people, you know, then how can, what can you do? Pasture raised isn't gonna solve it. Pasture raised animals may have somewhat less, but they're gonna have it. And they're gonna be, they're gonna have the result of bioaccumulation because they're eating all these plants that have it in their pastures, right? So now what pastures can, you do? can be sprayed, right? Well, if it's if it's if they say pasture, if it's not organic, an organic you know, pasture, right? But even right, if it is, right. they're going to have winds all these. And, yeah, right. exactly. And soil, it's in the environment, right? So the question to me is: So, well, what what in the world can you do then? How can how can you minimize the effect of these chemicals? And the only thing I could come up with was to feed less meat. You yeah. know, at least you're reducing the makes dose. sense. <laughs> Right. It's, they've done studies and and people that eat a vegetarian diet versus um, uh, omnivore or meat meat containing diet, and they find that the the exposure to chemicals for the vegetarian diets is about one percent of those mm -hmm. who eat the standard American. Mm -hmm. So it made sense to me that why not just feed then lowered on the food chain, and instead of feeding meat that has all this large amounts of chemical in it, feed plants that are and use healthy plant, organic. Right. 
So that's why I came up with the fourth edition. Let's feed plant-based primarily. Because, and, I, and surprisingly, once we started using those recipes, we saw definite health improvements. Right. So it makes, doesn't it make total sense that if you say, okay, cancer is increasing and increasing very significantly. Now, now the, I saw a report, the, I'm trying to think of the organization, the veterinary, you know, mainstream veterinary organization published a paper where they said that they estimate 50% of dogs are going to have cancer in their lives. Yes. All right. So that's incredible, isn't it? That, that figure, because it didn't used to be that way when I graduated, it was uncommon. So you think it has to be a reason for it. Then you find out the dogs are being fed uh, food that contains 11 carcinogens. Well, duh. Could it be carcinogens <laughs> be causing the cancer? Yeah, the, the study, studies are limited. You know, it costs money to do research studies, and, the, and there isn't necessarily going to be a lot of financial support for doing extensive studies like this. Right. But I, I'll share another paper with you, which I think is significant, which is um, this was done in 2011, uh, published, and the title of it is Analysis of Toxic Trace Metals in Pet Foods using um, cryogenic grinding and quantization of, I can't even read it all, you know, right, IC, ICPM. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what they did was they tested 58 cat and dog foods bought from local stores and donated by authors and by pet owners. The samples consisted of 31 dry food, 27 wet foods, um, of uh, the dry foods, 18 were dog foods and 13 were cat food samples. The wet foods were 13 dog foods and 14 cat food samples. They were in cans and in pouches. And they gave the prices here, the range of prices. So it was pretty, you know, it's a pretty wide right. range as best they could determine. Um, they found when they analyzed the pet foods, they found the highest concentrations of toxic elements were in the dry foods of both cats and dogs. Um, dog food had the highest result of nine of the toxic elements. And I'll, and I'll just get, I know we don't want to spend a lot of time on this, I know, but I'll just give a little bit of a summary of what they found, they, uh, the way they put it, which I thought was a good way to describe it. They say a 50 pound dog that eats five cups a day of dry food or one large can of wet food with the maximum contamination would be con consuming about. Uh, 20 times the human limit of arsenic. You understand what I mean? What, what is acceptable in humans, according to the right. FDA. Dogs are getting 20 times that. They're getting two times the cadmium levels. They're getting 120 times the accepted mercury levels for people, 120 times. They're getting twice the thallium. These are all heavy metals five times mm -hmm. uranium levels, and six times mm -hmm. vanadium levels. And of course, most dogs are not, the, you know, we're talking about these, these accepted levels for people, people are larger than dogs. So, you know, you're talking really significant levels here. Um, and these yeah. are in the meat, the bioaccumulated toxins in the yeah. animal products. 
So granted, it didn't test all pet foods that are out there. That would be very, very expensive and difficult right. to do. But but it gives you some idea, doesn't it? When they tested the, the a variety of canned foods and, and wet foods, uh, dry foods, I should say, versus canned, they found all these substances just just testing heavy metals, not even the other chemicals. Well, yes, honestly, we don't know all the foods, but then that's true for human food too. Not all of it's been tested. It's just too expensive and too complicated, <clears throat> isn't it? I mean, think about, you know, 100,000 chemicals that we're gonna test for safety. Well, we have to do studies in which you have control groups, right? Have human volunteers. They don't, you know, actually the way it's done, if you have a what they identify as a carcinogen, let's say, through studies they've done in animals, they will not test it in human. Did you know that? They say it's unethical. So they only test animals. And they just assume that animals respond like humans do. But then how do we know that? And how do we know that dogs respond like cats or cats like dogs, you see? Unless you do a study. You see how complicated it would be? So we have this dilemma, if you will. This dilemma, right, the dilemma with a capital it, D. That we have this toxic system. system. So we have this dilemma of this yet, given this and and the really what seems like you know conclusion that you drew seems pretty obvious you know what would you do to avoid these bioaccumulated toxins you would eat lower on the food chain right that seems pretty non-controversial um it seems like a pretty intelligent scientific way to go about it mm -hmm. um yet i know you have endured some backlash to that conclusion as as have I um, and others who promote a plant-based way of eating um, for for dogs. What do you think that stems from? Why do you think that people are so set on the belief that dogs need these that they need meat and that they are still today, the ones that sleep in our beds and ride in our cars and go to the vets, that they are carnivores? That's a good question. Uh, well, first of all, you and I know from just having done a little research on it, that biologists consider dogs not to be carnivores, but to be omnivores. And that's indeed what, what uh, if you study what, what animals like foxes and wolves and others in nature, they eat a lot of plant material, not not primarily probably, but certainly significantly. And um, the uh, that probably wouldn't answer this objection though, that they do, <laughs> that they're not exactly common. They still say, well, they're primarily meat eaters, right? Well, an interesting one with dogs, are you aware of that uh, genetic study that was done dogs compared to wolves? Yeah. Yeah, this this one is, is in Science Scientist magazine in 2013. <clears throat> they did a full the full analysis of dogs and wolves of their genetic material. And they found that because dogs for thousands of years have been fed basically primarily um, non-meat diets, they've adapted to it. You know, like it, it, historically in Greece, they fed primarily beans to dogs. Right. 
Um, so, so anyway, there's a, they they did a um, dog genome analysis back to 2005. They did uh, 12 wolves and uh, 60 dogs with 14 diverse breeds, and they found they found that a, a quite a number of genes, 10 of them, that dogs had developed or activated that helped them to divide, excuse me, to digest starches and fats and so on, just like humans. And so I won't go into a lot of detail here and bore you with this, but I'm sure you're familiar with it. But they, basically the conclusion of the study was that they can eat the same diet as humans and have the same ability to digest. And then there have been studies where they've been, dogs have been fed starch diets and they do just fine, or puppies growing up on it do just fine. So the research, the scientific research says, no problem. They don't have to eat meat. Right. But then the people object. As your question is, why won't they accept that? I think probably it's an image they have about what the dog is, don't you? They have this image in their mind that the dog is this wolf-like animal, and they don't want right. to, they probably, there's somehow, I'm just guessing, but somehow there's a certain amount of identification and pleasure in the idea of having an animal that's like a wolf. And then mm. if you start to think of it's not really a wolf anymore, <laughs> then right. that sort of uh, weakens your enjoyment. And, and you know, it, it is interesting too. Um, I'll say this, uh, risk offending some. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, 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 the objection that will be brought to us is, well, it's, it should be species appropriate diet. You should respect you know, the biology, how God made them or whatever, how, how it's put different ways. And so they should be eating meat. That's their natural diet. And, and oftentimes then what my joke is they're, they're saying this with a lot of emphasis while they're eating a hamburger. Right. Which is not species appropriate. No, <laughs> we're not meat eaters. We're primates. You know, and we laughed. And what it really does is speak to a reality that is not necessarily, you know, based, well, to opinions that are not necessarily based in reality. Right. Um, and it speaks to the fact that the realities of today, which you recognized way back several years ago, which came from decades of experience, we have new realities today. We have new realities of, of skyrocketing illnesses um, in these companion animals. You know, you you thought to look at why this is. And we have new realities that you talk a lot about in your book that are hard for people, I think, to hear, which is mm -hmm. that if you continue to promote this feeding uh, animals to, to yourself or your dog, you are promoting um, something that is is you know, it, it's an animal welfare um, situation for, mm -hmm. yeah. It you is, know, I, I understand that challenge. And um, and people can be easily offended by that too, because if you say, you're kind of saying to them in a way, if you really cared about animals, you wouldn't want to be killing these other ones, right. you know. I, but, you know, you raise a really important point. We're getting to a point in our world where we don't, we can't afford for the majority of people and animals to be eating other animals. We just don't have the resources. We're cutting down the rainforest to grow soybeans, to feed cattle. You know, it just can't keep it up. It's not possible. Eventually it's gonna be forced on us to cut back off on this. The early years of my veterinary work, I worked with livestock and, and um, 
animals raised in various ways, a whole range of animals raised in farms and other. I, when I worked right. up at, at the university before my graduate program, I was uh, in charge of a large animal clinic uh, reception area, and then we'd go out to farms and things. So I saw all this stuff. I saw how animals are raised. I saw, you know, they express feelings and sensitivities just like other animals. There's no difference, really. And they certainly don't want to be killed. I can quite assure you of that. So, so it wasn't that hard for me to take on that, accept, accept the idea that if I really care about animals, I don't want to kill them. And uh, because I, I wasn't so much attached to dogs versus cats or whatever as I was to animals. I cared about animals. That's why I went into veterinary medicine. And sometimes uh, <laughs> it's kind of a joke, but sometimes people will, will, you know, if I go somewhere and uh, maybe a veterinary group or something, you know, and they know I'm a veterinarian and we're, they're having lunch. And I'll say, uh, do you have any uh, plant-based dishes here? I don't eat animals and that. Oh, you don't, you know? I said, no, I don't eat my patients. Exactly. <laughs> you yeah. are le really leading the way in too, as being, <clears throat> being brave as a veterinarian to come out there and show a different way of looking at this for the profession. Mm -hmm. um, you know, many clients come to me um, for plant-based diets and their veterinarian has told them that they will be killing their dog. You know, they, the dog cannot eat. And so it, it's very judgmental. Um, and I, I hope that one day in the veterinary community that will change. Um, and, and yeah, I, I hope that be, you know, yeah, I hope there'll be some learning about this because it's obviously not accurate. In fact, it'll go the opposite. They'll often get healthier. Right. Yeah. Nutrition, right? Exactly. Yeah, so nutrition, I think, is really important. It's, it's, there's two aspects to it. Nutrition in the sense of it's really high-quality food, organic, uh, full array of, of nutrients, you know, vitamins, minerals, protein, everything. And on the other hand, it's not toxic. It doesn't contain a lot of stuff that's harmful to your body. Because, you know, we very, again, it's another, it's another one of these conundrums, you know, because like the species-appropriate diet, and that, that contrast that you know isn't logical. In the same way, you know, are we very much as a veterinary profession buy into the idea that chemicals we call drugs have effects on the body. Well, if there are chemicals in the food, they're going to have effects on the body too, right? But there's a general kind of like, oh, that's not important. Right. You know, the chemicals I use are important drugs. The ones, the other ones, well, we'll just, you know give you something to help reduce inflammation and or maybe some practitioners will say they'll work on trying to cleanse the body in various ways but they're not really fully acknowledging that these substances are acting like drugs in the animals how hopeful are you that for change significant change well that's a good question i really don't know what's going to happen there's a lot of pressures on people not to make their own food because they're busy. And e even more so now with our economies becoming more difficult, you know, people are struggling to have enough money to live on. So they can't afford to take time away from their work to do things like this. Hopefully there will be some, um, I think there are 
some people, some maybe some small companies starting to develop alternative brands that are healthier. I think that's going to be a good move. But how well will it be accepted? It, it really involves a cultural, well, I shouldn't say cultural, let's say a change of mindset, right? I mean, it's like what we're talking about isn't totally logical, right? If, if you say species appropriate diet is really important and you're emotional about it, then it has to apply to you too, right? Besides your animal, logically. Right. Or if you say, uh, I have to, you know, drugs are important in the treatment of disease, then you have to acknowledge there are drugs in the food. So it's not logical to ignore that. So it, it really comes back to how are we using our minds? And to me, we have right. to learn to think clearly and to think logically and not be so swayed by emotional preferences. I think today you've done something for me and I'm sure for everyone listening, which is you've combined some really strong scientific evidence and scientific reasons that started your journey along feeding dogs a plant-based diet. And I think you've done such a great job of combining that with a lot of, a lot of heart and, and a lot of, you know, just like you said, um, the world can't continue this way, right? Like one day it's, it's, we're at a turning point and hopefully not past the turning point. Right. So for me, as you know, for many years, I don't, I don't know if you know this, but sometimes when I feel um, particularly have had a day where maybe someone, you know, you take some online abuse or you take, um, you know, it's not so easy. <clears throat> um, I think of everything you've done and how you do not give in and how you stand by the truth and by your message. And, and I, I thank you for that because you are not, like my husband said, you can have your own opinions and not your own facts. You have the facts and it's led you to just an amazing um, you know, journey and, and you've inspired me and I, I know you're inspiring everybody else. So thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Um... I, I feel good about the way it's gone for me because it just feels right to my heart. You know, this is what I should be doing. <clears throat> Not everybody approves of it. And I am, as you say, criticized, but I'm, I am sharing what seems to be logical in the sense that we have, it, it is a fact that animal disease, chronic disease, as opposed I'm acute, by acute disease, I mean like injuries and infections, flu or whatever, you know, distemper. Right. Chronic disease more like involving the gland thymus, you know, heart disease, cancer, whatever. Th that chronic disease has increased steadily in animals. Yeah. And there's got to be some explanation for it, you know. We know there has to be a cause for it. So it's very reasonable to look for a cause. <laughs> now, I may be wrong in identifying the cause, or it may be that what, I, what I, we're saying here to people about that this is an important factor may be a factor but maybe there's another one we haven't recognized that's very possible but uh it just seems to me so so obvious you know if you if you let your mind be open to it that if you're feeding hundreds of substances that have toxic effects in the body it's going to have some effect you know you're not going to be as healthy as you would be otherwise right it just seems like how could you not how can you ignore that Right. So, um, 
it just seems like it should be given attention to it, and it's part of it is um as i said earlier that the world has changed because you know there's more and more chemicals and there's now that now there's gmo right and now they're talking about genetic modification of of people as well as animals did you know that they're starting to move that direction so yeah it's getting very strange and um i think that it's a challenge it's a challenge to all of us to sort of make sense of it and how to live with it because there's a lot of factors there's all the political stuff there's all the um you know so many different arguments over nutrition there's so different views of medicine so you know it's it's like you, you can kind of come to the point where you say i don't care anymore i give up you know <laughs> it's just too complicated but you know if you want to try to help your animals best you can i think giving some attention to the food quality and the food um, consideration is really important that's been my experience with it that's what i finally come to i think it's a big one we can mm -hmm. we can give the health and and respect all animals and the planet and everybody it just seems oh, like yeah. A win-win, you know? It does, yeah. Yeah, because you're not only improving the health of the animal, you're sparing other animals, as you say, which is really nice, isn't it? It's, it's, it feels good. <laughs> yeah, it feels good. Plus, you know, well, then there's the whole question of resources. We, we're, then we're also taking action to reduce uh, the demand on resources that, the, that we have to deal with. I mean, we're, we're kind of ignoring it as a society, as a culture. But we're going to have to, you know, it's going to be forced upon us. We just don't have enough to keep going as we are, you know, using up the Earth's resources. So right. all of those come together. And it may even come to the point where we just don't have the accessibility and possibility of feeding a dog the diet that's being fed today with commercial foods. You can't obtain it. You can't buy it. It's not available anymore. So you either don't have a dog or you feed it a plant-based diet. It may come to that. <laughs> we run out of land to raise all of these, yeah. these animals, right? And the we food to feed land. them. Yeah, yeah. Right. And water, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, exactly. That's where it seems mm. to be headed, doesn't it? Yes. Well, thank you, Dr. Pitcairn. Thank you so much. Um, this has been you know, a pleasure. And, and as I said, from the very beginning, I think it was back in 2017, when I was shifting over and needed more information, you were there. And uh, you've been such a huge influence in my life. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Well, thank you for what you do. Thank you. I mean, you know, it's, it's standing on giant shoulders. So thank you. <laughs> not so, not so high. You could, have, you could have hung up on me that day. And said, Please talk to me. <laughs> thank you um all right well i i hope that everyone has enjoyed this and i'm sure you have as much as i have um this is the opportunity to really speak with a legend in the field and i hope that you enjoyed it so thank you and thank you dr pick thank you diane <laughs>